need to see your face. There we go. <gasps> okay. Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back. We hope you're all doing lovely and perfect. We sure do. We sure do. I think we're doing okay, right? Yeah. We're coping. We're getting yeah, along. Yeah, we're coping. We're coping. It's hot in the Midwest. It is. It it's is very hot. hot. Yeah. Um, my plants are very happy, though, finally. Mine, too. My tomatoes are thriving in this heat. <sighs> thriving. So we've been spending a lot of time together. I taught my little girl that we have to talk to our plants to help them grow. <laughs> Which was yeah. my job as a child. My mom would send me outside to talk to the plants and like... Of fucking course she did. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it was my job to talk to them and to, you know, give them inspiring words and to, you know, say sweet nothings to them and everything. And she always had good tomatoes. So I think there's something to it. I just had to weed them. Oh, I had to mm. talk to them. No, I had yeah. to do the hard work. <laughs> It's hard to talk to plants. They don't talk back very well. It's like me. Is that how you became friends with me? Pretty much. It's how I become friends with all of my introverts. <laughs> it's like, you're not giving me anything back. I'm just going to talk to you like you're a tomato. And eventually, we're going to be best friends. It's probably best that way. In the summer, I look very much like a tomato um, <laughs> if I get a sunburn. So. Yeah, that's fair. So yeah, that's what's been going on over here. We're just like trying to settle into this house. And I keep injuring myself. That's been oh. a little bit troubling. I fell into a pothole, which also feels like the most Midwestern injury ever. Yeah, it is. So I fell into a pothole and banged up my right knee and my left ankle. So I'm literally useless from the waist down at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's so terrible. It's so terrible. But I'm trying, you know. So you're basically like a torso and some arms and just flailing Pretty much, around. yeah. And I have to spend a lot of time on the floor with my kid and there's like no good way to stand up. So I have to like angle my body. Basically like the best way I've found to do it so that there's no pain is to like get into like a high plank, like the top of a push-up, and then <laughs> angle my foot down into a standing position and then pull myself up the rest of the way. That sounds very complicated. It is very complicated. But if it I can't twist my left ankle and I cannot put weight on my right knee. Okay. It's not good. I Yeah, I don't know what to tell you there. Um, my lower back hurts because I've been doing a ton of yard work. Mm. Um, and my yoga teacher has just been really on a twist bend. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah. I love that. I don't. Neither does my lower back. Mm. It's like all twists and back bends. Oh, it's my favorite. Oh, I hate it so much. Oh, here's the neighbor. What's he doing? Where are you going? <sighs> okay, listeners, you have to tell us. Do you like chatty neighbors? <laughs> because the consensus here at Midwretched is no. <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. I, I like my chatty neighbors. I like, so for instance, the people in the house behind us, um, brought us over a jar of their hand-tapped maple syrup that they tap from their backyard and then like cook down and smoke like and it's one of the most delicious things I've ever tasted like I put it on some Mm -hmm. oatmeal and I thought I was in literal heaven Mm -hmm. but it's the like it's the everybody wanting to talk every time we go outside that right 
like I'm all I'm down for a conversation but like can we set up like a time (laughs) you know see that's my thing you know my neighbors are very nice they're very kind the neighbors two houses down brought me some cucumbers and some squash because they had extra starters oh that's nice the squash did not make it the squash just did not like being transplanted Mm. but I got some cucumbers going and that was very nice but it is the same thing like bro sometimes I just want to talk to my dog and my tomatoes yeah not to people exactly exactly same and my daughter is very shy so she has a hard time with it too which has definitely Mm -hmm. been like another layer of parenting a three-year-old that has been a little much these past couple of weeks so weird for you has she gotten to the point of hiding behind your leg yet oh very much so yeah okay yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah. very much oh she has my spirit in her i'm sorry she has a lot of your spirit in her actually (laughs) 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 yeah she hides behind me she really likes to hide behind and like hug my butt because that's kind of where she comes up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's just, or she like burrows into my chest. She's like, she's very shy right now. So, yeah. 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 I spent the ages of between like two and five hiding behind a parent. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, I didn't, yeah. but you know, she looks like me. She acts like you. Basically. <laughs> I don't know how I got my DNA into your child. (laughs) You did, though, because she's you. You even have, like, close birthdays. It's like you, like, reincarnated part of your soul. It's like my daughter is your horcrux, which you would understand if you liked Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, We should probably get started here, though. This is uh, probably too much chitter-chatter that we should cut down so that we don't annoy our listeners too much. Yes. Also, we've been on this Zoom call for 45 minutes already. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So start. Uh, what's a transition for your story? We are, are we going um, back oh, to? Oh, so you were telling me about how some of your neighbors are tattoo artists. Yes. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. So they might know some of the names I get to drop in today's episode. Ooh, good transition. I like it. This is yeah. why we talk for 45 minutes before we start recording. This is where we get the, the creative juices This is where flying. we get that good transition mm-hmm. info. Yeah. All right. So today we are actually going to talk about the very interesting betrayal and murder of a well-known Midwestern tattoo artist. Interesting. Okay. Lay it on me. I'm going to get comfortable. I am super excited. So for reasons that we're going to come to learn, a lot of the coverage of this case that's been focused on has been on the forensic side of the investigation which we're going to definitely talk about. It is very, very cool, some of the forensics that go into solving this case. Mm. But since that story has already been told from the forensic side, so if you want to, Extreme Forensics covered this. I think 48 Hours covered it from the Mm. forensic side. That's been done, so I really want to focus on telling the story of our victim. Okay. Otherwise, I feel like I would just be retelling a bunch of already, like, done episodes of this. Yeah, that's fair. So we are going to talk about our victim today, who is a very interesting guy named Gregory May. Mm. Gregory May is a guy who worked very hard. He blazed some trails for his time. Thanks to the relationships that he built and the people that knew him, they really, really fought to get his case solved. Mm. There's some amazing detective work that we get to talk about today. We get to talk about people really, really fighting to understand how their friend and their family member died. So, mm. yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Greg May. Yes. 
fact, Greg May was born in Lake Forest, Illinois, which is a town about half hour, 45 minutes north of Chicago. Mm. If you're going like from Rogers Park, it's probably a lot closer. Sure. But like from downtown Chicago. Yeah. It's also it's a very well off neighborhood. Mm. By all reports, Greg came from a good family, a pretty successful family. And although he came from a really well-off neighborhood, he was never known to be a pretentious, bougie Mm. kind of person. He was super down-to-earth, much like myself and your child, a pretty quiet guy kept to himself. He also kind of slid seamlessly between different groups of people. Mm. And that would kind of come to play with his two big passions in life. His one passion in life that we're going to talk quite a bit about was tattooing. Mm. He was a great tattooer. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later, but his other passion was Civil War antiques. Cool. Okay. I like him. He was a legit, like, very dead serious antiquities collector. Cool. He would travel the world to pick up antiques, and some of these were worth, like, well over $10,000. Wow. We're talking about, like, bayonets, original letters, guns, all of this stuff. That's cool. Right? (laughs) So this guy was really cool. So I kind of fell in love with him, which is why I wanted to tell his story quite a bit. Yeah, totally. So like I said, Greg grew up around the Chicago area. And that kind of Lake Forest is also not too far from southern Wisconsin. We have spent a lot of time in that region on this show. It's not on purpose. It's just a lot of stuff happens there. Yeah, it really does. It's very much like a gateway area. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I feel like if you're trying to get out of Chicago, that's like your most direct route out of town. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to get to the big city, that's your most direct way into the city. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be like a very popular place to kind of settle down to. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's where our buddy... Greg settled down. Mm, Okay. He got his first tattooing jobs um, floating around different shops between Chicago and southern Wisconsin. Mm. And he learned from a couple of the, like, OGs in the tattooing business. Really? Including Gib Tats Thomas. Aw. Tats goes all the way back to the Ringling Brothers days. Cool. Which is where he got his name. He was on display with the Ringling Brothers Mm. for his full body suit and was kind of one of the first like celebrity tattoo artists. That's neat. That's cool. So Greg got to know Tats. And Tats actually is the guy that taught Norman Collins or who most people also know as Sailor Jerry. Yeah, that's so cool. Norman Collins was actually the guy who directly taught Greg May how Mm. to tattoo. That's amazing. So for people who aren't kind of tattoo nerds. Like we obviously are. Like we are. (laughs) We obviously are. Yeah, we are both enthusiasts with several beautiful tattoos, I would say. Yeah. A couple of questionable ones. A couple of questionable ones. Um, I've done eight-hour sits, so. Yeah, you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think my record is five, and then I tapped out. Uh, My artist made me go home after eight. She Mm -hmm. made me go get lunch after five. That's smart. I ate beforehand, but it was just a long day. Jeez, what took you eight hours? Ursula's body. Oh, well, body yaddy yaddy. She does have it. That yeah. body yaddy yaddy, yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so 
So Norman Collins or Sailor Jerry is kind of the originator of what we now call Sailor Jerry or American traditional tattooing. Mm -hmm. When you see a lot of that very classic flash, the clipper ships, the skull and dagger, all of that stuff, Mm -hmm. that is Sailor Jerry. The birds, yeah. Ah, the swallows, all of that. He was actually in the Navy during World War II, and he learned overseas a lot of tattooing techniques in Japan and Polynesia and brought a lot of that iconography and technique to America. Gorgeous. So cool. Um, And both of these guys would actually spend a good chunk of their careers in Chicago. Mm. So there's a good tattooing history in Chicago. Yeah. And they spent a lot of their time in Chicago teaching our buddy Gregory here. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Uh. (laughs) I love that so So, much. Greg opened up his first tattoo shop in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Mm. His tattoos were known for being bold, clean, and fast. Like, when you think flash tattoos, fast. But Mm. the ones that would just last forever. Beautiful. He would stay up, like, all hours of the night, hand-drawing the flash that he would put on the walls for people to buy. His kids would say, like, we would just wake up to go to the bathroom or whatever, and he would be up all hours of the night just drawing. That is so cool. I really, I really liked this guy. Like, I yeah. really, really came to like him learning about his story. Yeah, totally. His shop was super successful in Kenosha. Sadly, a little bit too successful because in 1968, Kenosha put a ban on tattooing and what? pushed Greg out. What? Yeah. <laughs> they banned tattooing. That's ridiculous. There were, I think there were a couple of other towns in Wisconsin I came across that did the same thing. What the heck? <laughs> So Greg picked up his bags and his tattoo machines and moved to Lake Geneva, Mm. where he opened up Lake Geneva Tattoo, a shop that still stands and still has excellent reviews and we should go to. Yes. This shop is where he met and built a wonderful relationship with a woman who would become his wife and fellow tattoo artist, Sheila May. Aww. Sheila May, some of our listeners, again, if you are a big nerd, might know. Because she became iconic for being one of the originators of tattooing makeup. That's cool. You want to guess who some of her biggest customers were? Uh, You tell me. Michael Jackson and Dolly Parton. (gasps) Really? Yes. That's so cool. That is so cool. (laughs) And many others who choose to remain anonymous. Understandable. We are definitely, definitely um, getting tattoos there together like we totally are we've we've just this is decided we've been talking about getting something matching for years we will do it lake geneva is not far from here Uh -uh, it's really not yeah no we're totally going (laughs) most definitely sheila and greg would have two children together they would eventually get divorced and sheila would move out to california with the two kids she would go on to be on dolly parton's speed dial which (laughs) isn't it she just fucking living the dream seriously (laughs) But Greg would remain at Lake Geneva Tattoo for nearly three decades. Oh, wow. Yeah. While tattooing professionally, like I said, he's still researching and collecting antiquities, Mm -hmm. like living his best life. That's awesome. And for the record, apparently he just had like an amazing eye for for Civil War antiques. Like this guy did his research. He was not like playing around. Some people just do. Yeah, I love that. He had tens of thousands of dollars that he kept meticulously. Mm. Records, appraisals, all of that with this stuff. So, 
That's rad. Um, it's super rad. He totally gives off like cool uncle vibes. I feel like. Yeah. I yeah. Totally. I feel like kind of comforted <laughs> by this biography in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He was one of those people I just kept reading more and more about, and I was like, oh, I want to meet him. Yeah. Totally. That's kind of the vibe that I would get from reading about people who knew him. That they mm-hmm. just everybody really liked him. Yeah. He stayed friends with everybody. He didn't really have any enemies. Although him and his, uh, he and Sheila divorced, they remained close friends mm. throughout the rest of his life. Yeah. Even though he was really well-liked, he was a pretty quiet guy. He kept to himself. He spoke very simply. Mm. Just a very direct, straightforward dude. Yeah. So, like I said, he opened the shop in 1968. In 1995, he was starting to think about retiring. Mm. He wanted to travel. He wanted to have a little bit more freedom. His kids were grown by this point. So what he does is he approaches Greg Kemser or Little Greg. Okay. Little Greg had worked in the shop since the 80s. And Greg thought he was the best person to take over the shop after he left. Mm. I think that this part just kind of shows you just generally what kind of person Greg was. Yeah. So little Greg was obviously super excited to like take over the shop and just carry on the name. Mm-hmm. So he talked to his family. His dad was like, yes, I will back you financially. We'll do the co-signing, whatever you need to do. But right before the final deal and everything went through, little Greg's father passed away. Oh, and he lost all the financial backing. Oh, that's so sad. It was really sad. So in 1997, after a lot of kind of conversations and back and forth, Greg May just says, take the shop. Wow. He's like, it's yours. I'm ready to retire. I'm done. Take the shop. Yeah. What a spirit. So Greg packs up his bags and goes to pursue his other dream, which was to live along the Mississippi like Mark Twain. You just wanted to be Mark Twain. I love that He's dream. He's so cute. <laughs> yeah, I love that dream. So he packed up his bags and he moved to Bellevue, Iowa, mm. a tiny little town on the Mississippi River, located on a bluff just overlooking the river. So gorgeous. Pretty. A town of only about 2,000 people. Oh, he's going to stand out. He did stand out. Mm. Luckily, though, Greg didn't move alone. He moved with an old friend that he had known since high school named Doug DeBruin. Mm. Doug also went by Moose or Buck. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not, right? He looked like a moose. Okay. Honestly, he looked like a moose. Um, The two had known each other, like I said, since they were teenagers. And he was kind of like the yin to Greg's yang, Mm. where Greg was like very composed and very quiet and kept to himself. Doug was very sharp-tongued, very outgoing, very jovial. He would mm. kind of like the first guy to chat you up, but also kind of throw some of those comments out there. Yeah. The two had tattooed together for years. Greg showed him the ropes and occasionally let him tattoo at the shop in Geneva. But mostly they just kind of hang out. They're like, let's move to Iowa. Let's play pool. Let's go fishing. Let's live that old guy dream. Beautiful. Yeah, I just Googled Bellevue and it's gorgeous. And now I want to move there. Do you want to live like Mark Twain? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cool on that, but I do want to live on a bluff above a river. Like, that would be gorgeous. Did you ever watch that claymation, The Adventures of Huck Finn? No. I know what you're talking about, but it wasn't my thing. It's terrifying. Don't ever watch it. Um, so, so Doug DeBruin was not the cleanest guy. He was a guy with a past. Um, he was actually an ex-con mm. who had served time for firearms charges in Wisconsin, which takes a lot in Wisconsin. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say. And at the time that they moved, he was actually out on parole for domestic violence and weapons possession at the time. Oh, gross. Yeah. So again, the, a little bit opposite of Greg. Yeah, our chill little Our Greg, chill little, yeah. yeah, buddy here. And at the time, Doug mm-hmm. DeBruin was going by the name Douglas Johnson. Okay, that's always suspicious. Always suspicious. Yeah. Now, I don't know if... Greg didn't know or if he just wasn't bothered by it mm. I think it's one of those things like they've known each other a long time and bros will make yeah. excuses for each other some people would say that Greg they described Greg as having like a misguided generosity mm. yeah. yeah that can happen yeah. maybe I mean and it could just be like a little bit of column A a little bit of column B like if he knew some stuff but not everything you know He's like, well, he's my, you know, I've known him for so long, and he's not like mm-hmm. that. He's getting better, you know. Yeah, exactly. He's turned a corner. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the two rent a house in Bellevue, Iowa. Adorable. It's an old town. It's described as a little insular. Mm. Many people will travel there from big towns like Chicago or Milwaukee to kind of get that small town feel. And the townies would call these people the big city burnouts. <laughs> and would intentionally slash unintentionally kind of try to push him out. Mm, that's funny. They were, Greg and Doug were a little bit kind of shunned and pushed aside. Aww. One writer who lived in Bellevue said that the town definitely has kind of an us versus them feel. Yeah. I feel like a lot of touristy towns are like that. Yeah. And that's what this kind of feels like. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of people coming from bigger cities are going to say, like, oh, this is so idyllic and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's so quaint, which can sometimes feel like kind of an insult, Mm -hmm. like people don't actually live here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that kind of feeds that us versus them kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. Like, you don't really get it. You're just here for vacation. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though it seemed like Greg really just kind of wanted to settle down there. Yeah. Although... Like you mentioned, the, these guys kind of stand out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both did start doing a little bit of work at a local tattoo parlor. Mm. I, I gathered that Greg was the kind of guy, much like many of the people in my family, where you can try to retire, but it's never going to actually happen. Yeah, you're always going to be doing something. Yep, yeah, yeah. Greg started to date a girl from the other side of the river named mm. Jan. They seemed so cute and so sweet together. Aww. And Moose, or Doug, started dating a girl named Julie. Mm. Meanwhile, Greg and Moose live their kind of pretty chill old guy life. They hang out at the cafes. Mm -hmm. They play pool. They do a tattoo here and there. Yeah, kind of sign me up. Like, that sounds like our (laughs) retirement plan. (laughs) Just hang out at a cafe. I'm terrible at pool, but I will still play all day long. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. Mm -hmm. We can be competing terrible pool players. Yes. 
love it. I love it. Maybe we'll get better after a few years. Could be. Or not, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that seems more likely, but, you know, we could try. Yeah. Like Greg and Moose, we would probably stand out a little bit. Yeah, probably. We tend to. <laughs> we tend to. It's annoying. Yeah. Yeah. But it is our lot in life. It's our lot in life. We do this to ourselves. So Greg had stayed there with Moose slash Doug for a couple of years, but I think it got to a point where he wanted nicer weather. He wanted the warmth. He was kind of tired of not being totally accepted. He came from Chicago, Mm. which as much as outsiders will judge us, we are a very accepting town. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I think that there's also just a little bit of a general wanderlust that Greg is feeling. Yeah, it seems like it. In January of 2001, Greg just decides he's ready to move on. Mm. He's done with Iowa. Okay. So I love this story. This is so cute. Jan was over one day. He walks by. He tosses her a real estate magazine and says, pick out a house. Aww. So cute. Yeah, I love that. So they were going to move to Florida together. And he is just like, where do you want to live? I'm open wherever. Mm. They really did seem to like just love each other. It wasn't a perfect relationship. As sweet as Greg sounds, he reportedly did have a bit of a temper. When things Mm. would flare, he would kind of walk out and not talk to anybody for a couple of days. But he would always kind of come back. Again, I I feel a little bit of myself and Greg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel you there too. Yeah. I do. But either way, Greg was super excited to move, or Jan was super excited to move to Florida with him. Mm. So the weekend of January 9th, 2001, Greg and Jan had spent the week together. Um, She was getting ready to go back um, across the river to Dubuque, or across the river to run a couple of errands. She wanted to say goodbye to a friend in Dubuque. Before she left, though, she and Greg were having a cigarette outside. So apparently the conversation came down to Greg and Jan were wanting to move to Florida. And Doug and his girlfriend, Julie, were like, yeah, we think we'll move down, too. Hmm. And Jan was not super happy about this. Yeah. And I don't know if she really didn't like them, if she just didn't want to be stuck with them, if she's just like, dude, this is us. Like, this is an our thing. Yeah. I mean, even if I, like, really, really, really loved my friend and their person, mm-hmm. if I was, like, set to go somewhere with my husband, I wouldn't necessarily want, like, roomies, you know? <laughs> like, like, even if I love them. Yeah. 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 So Jan also shared some concerns about Doug. She's like, I yeah. don't I don't love him. There's just something about him. I just, it's bad vibes. I just don't trust him. Yeah. Greg tried to reassure her. He's like, dude, I've known Doug for 30 years. Like, he's rough on the outside. But, you know. Greg added to that, though. He's like, I don't fucking trust Julie. Huh. Greg had apparently told his son, Don, this a couple of weeks before. He was talking to Don about Julie, and he described her as a sneaky bitch. Interesting. I wonder why. No more details on that, but it struck Don Mm. because he was like, my dad does not talk like that. 
Like, yeah, he sounds like a, such a gentle spirit. Mm-hmm. To call somebody that is a pretty harsh. <laughs> like that is a that's a that's a harsh judgment on somebody. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't the first time he had expressed some distrust of Julie. Mm. But Greg tells Jan, "Don't worry about it. Just go home, do what you got to do, and come on back, and we'll plan our new life in Florida." Yeah, kind of like I'll deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. So Jan mm-hmm. left for the night. She heads home to take care of some things. And Greg, you know, went back to his life to take care of his own things. Sure. Jan set to come back about three days later. So January 11th we're on now. At about 8 p.m. on January 11th, Jan comes home to Greg's rental house in Iowa. The back door was locked, which is weird by itself because who in the Midwest locks their back door? Yeah, that's fair. It's true. But it was, in general, it was weird for Greg. And so she rings the bell, waits for somebody to come. Nobody answers. She walks around to the front. Nobody's answering. She's knocking on the doors, on the windows. Hey, what's going on? Mm. Yeah. She thought she saw Doug sitting inside. She only saw him from the waist up, and he didn't seem to be moving. Oh, She saw Julie pacing around nervously through the window. She seemed to be cleaning. Oh. But while she's knocking on the door and she sees people inside, nobody would answer her. Oh. That's weird. Mm -hmm. But, of course, Jan's first thought is, oh, God, he must be mad at me. What did I say? Mm. What did I do? Oh, damn it. Yeah. (sighs) So Jan goes to cool off. She's like, I'm just going to head over. She heads to a local cafe. She orders some soup and a beer. And just just, just like, I'm just going to chill out. Wait it out. Wait it out. And she eventually calls him. No answer, but she leaves a message. She says, why won't you answer the door? Are you mad at me? Mm. She stews a little bit longer at the cafe and finally works herself back up to head back to the house. Mm. This time when she gets to the house, she doesn't see anyone, but she can definitely hear somebody. She can hear thumps and crashes and somebody definitely stomping around inside the house. Interesting. And she thinks, shit, man, must Greg must be really mad to be stomping around and slamming doors like that. Wow. But again, she knows there's people inside. Nobody's letting her in. She goes so Mm -hmm. far as to actually call the property manager. Hmm. But the property manager is like, dude, I can't let you in. Like, yeah, you're not a tenant. Sorry. Right. Not how that works. Yeah. You know, it's valiant effort. Valiant effort. I I love it. But um, yeah. So Jan, the only option she has left is to jump back in her car and head home. Yeah. So I imagine that she's she's mad, she's hurt, she's confused. She's going to just kind of let some time pass. Mm. So she waits a couple of days. She waits three days, and the next Sunday, she gets a call from Julie. Oh, God. <sighs> Julie tells Jan, Greg decided he doesn't want to move to Florida with you. He went back to Chicago. Don't call him. Oh, come on. And Jan didn't believe that shit either. Good. Okay. 
Is it bad that I like kind of just decided I didn't like Julie just because Greg said he didn't like Julie and I like Greg? <laughs> I feel Greg up pretty high. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. But you probably shouldn't trust Julie. Okay. Yeah, I mean, no. I mean, it seems like Jan literally just watched like either the before math or the aftermath of whatever happened to Greg. Yeah. 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 Welcome to Mid-Wretched. Uh-huh. Pretty much. People, yeah, it's not going to turn out Where well. we watch terrible things through windows. Yes. Yeah. So Jan's again like stewing, stewing, stewing. Another three days pass. She's like, fuck it, I'm going down there. She drives down mm-hmm. to Bellevue. And when she gets to the house in Belle- Bellevue, she finds his car, his furniture, and all of his Civil War antiques gone. Oh. The house is empty. Wow. Okay. She was mad. She was big mad. Yeah. Because I think although she didn't want to believe it, there was a part of her that is like, maybe he did just go back to Chicago. Maybe he did just break up with me. And Maybe he does just have that wandering spirit. Yeah. Maybe he got cold feet and just doesn't have the guts to tell me. Like, Yeah. Because this just felt like a rejection to her. And I don't think, yeah. as much as she didn't trust Doug or Julie, I don't think she jumped to murder. Right. I mean, most people don't. Except us. Pretty much. <laughs> and that's where we jump first, and then we have to be like, wait a minute. Like, no. Wait, no, there's probably other explanations here. Yeah, there's got to be something reasonable here. <laughs> but murder, though, right? No, there's no, yeah. Anyway, well, it wasn't long before Greg's son Don started to worry. Mm. So like I said, Greg was pretty close to his kids and his ex-wife. Yeah. Although Don lived all the way across the country in California, he talked to his dad every couple of days. Mm. He hadn't seen his dad in person for a few months, but he was like, hey, it's been two weeks and my dad hasn't called. He hasn't answered any of my texts. And he started to worry. Yeah. He kind of excused this for a bit, thinking maybe my dad's traveling. Maybe, you know, he got a good lead on some antiques. Maybe he broke his phone. I don't know. Mm. But Don really could not shake the feeling that something was wrong. Yeah. By the end of the month, so after a couple more weeks of not hearing his dad, he traveled from Santa Monica, California to Iowa. Wow. To file a missing persons report. Like, he did not... Like, no in-between steps. No, he really thought something was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So Don and his sister, so Greg's other child, Shannon, filed the report and immediately requested an investigation into the disappearance. Good for them. And luckily, in this case, the police complied. Yeah. Because, like, okay, a, a guy in his 60s hasn't been heard from in a month. That is suspicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And suddenly all is, of his stuff is. is gone. Yeah, and the the war memorabilia too, mm-hmm. like that that's not just stuff gone, that's valuables gone. That's a big red flag. Yeah. They started obviously with the simplest, let's talk to Greg's roommates. Mhm. So Doug, like I said, was going by a fake name. Right. He wasn't great at it. They pretty quickly and easily tracked down his real name to an old employer through old employment records. Mm. And once they tracked down his old employment to a tattoo shop in Galena, 
they were able to find that he was on parole for weapons charges and domestic assault. Got it. So they're like, all right, we got this. We know who we're looking for. Mm -hmm. They also got a tip on finding Doug's Chevy Blazer. So they were able to identify him, track him through the DMV, figure out what car he had, and then somebody had reported an abandoned Chevy Blazer in a parking Mm -hmm. lot in Aurora, Illinois. Ooh, that's a decent drive. Yeah, that's a drive from Iowa. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Blazer, once they found that, they found Greg's wallet with his ID and his keys inside. Oh, gosh. Yeah, not good. Not good. But what they couldn't find were any leads on this mysterious Julie Johnson. Mm. They could not figure out who the hell is this person. It's interesting that her last name is his fake name. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll solve that like... mystery here real soon. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. See, it, it, it doesn't seem quite right. It's yeah, not quite right. Yeah, there's nothing quite right about this story. Mm-mm. Word was spreading about Greg's disappearance. And while Don and Shannon had had to travel back to Santa Monica, an old family friend of theirs calls up Don and says, hey, I have something I want you to see. Hmm. He comes over to Don's house and he shows Don a brochure from an antique auction company. Hmm. This particular antique auction company specialized in antique firearms and military artifacts. Mm. Don was shocked to see more than 70 of his father's antiques listed for sale. Oh, wow. Okay. He knew immediately as soon as he saw them. That's, yeah, something really went down Mm -hmm. here. He's like, my dad would never put these up for auction, especially not without ever telling us. Yeah. Like, these are his prized possessions. They are to be passed down to the family. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, at that point, you're really talking about, like, inheritance level kind of valuables you know mm-hmm. like not that people are like not that entitled I... to that information from their parents but like yeah. i feel like most parents in possession of that kind of wealth mm-hmm. do bequeath that, that to their that's, kids yeah you know? exactly and i think that that again that i don't think that's what was on his kids minds but they were like mm-hmm. hold on no our dad doesn't buy these to sell them yeah yeah so don takes the brochure takes it directly to the police And I'm going to give a lot, a lot of credit to the Iowa police here Mm -hmm. um, for pushing this investigation because they could have said, like we've seen in a lot of other cases, this is an adult. He's allowed to disappear. We have no evidence of foul play. All of it. They didn't they didn't play with that shit. Yeah, that's great. I love that they weren't dismissive at all. Mm -mm. In fact, the Bellevue City Council was actually trying to stop the investigation. That's interesting. Because... To Bellevue, they're like, this is an outsider. He was never really mm. welcome in the first place. He's not really one of he, us. Exactly. Yeah. He was leaving anyway. We should not be spending all of our money trying to investigate an adult that just decided to leave. That is an uncool attitude. Uncool, Bellevue. Yeah, I don't like that. And that's why you don't that's why we don't go to small towns. I just moved to one, dude. Oh yeah. So you just like insulted where I live, but okay. If you... <laughs> well, if you go missing, I hope that they're willing to investigate it. Me too. Me too. 
Because I will track I have, you down like Don did. I do think so far I am the darkest person I've seen in this town. So <laughs> that's a little frightening. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sending my love to you. Thank you. So the local police department really, really fought. They're like, no, we got to keep this open. Good. There is something hinky here and I don't like it. Yeah. Um. So they kept it alive, and they kept going, and the hits kept on coming. Mm. Police took the brochure and continued the investigation through the auctioned artifacts. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, that's like, it's just impressive to me. Yeah. This investigation goes down so, in such an interesting, cool way. Yeah. So they questioned the auction company and got the information for the person that listed the items. The auction company said that it was a woman named Julie Johnson, not very smooth Julie Johnson, yeah, who claimed that she had inherited them through her uncle. Mm-hmm. The paperwork that she filled out traced the address of a Mary Clark in Webster, Wisconsin. Interesting. So I told you, we're going all over the place in this episode. Yeah, that's a name that we haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not too far removed. By April 2001, the investigators were talking in person with Mary, who Hmm. just happened to be the mother of Julie Johnson, a.k.a. Julie Miller. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Julie Johnson is actually Julie Miller. Okay. We're putting it together now. She said that her daughter Julie was currently living in Flagstaff in the back of a Ford Rider with a man named Doug. Hmm. Flagstaff, Arizona? Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. These friends are just road tripping. Yeah, I guess so. Further inquiry and interviews with the people of Bellevue, especially their neighbors. Someone finally comes forward and says, oh yeah, I saw Doug and Julie packing up a bunch of old stuff in the back of a Ford Ryder truck late one night. Hmm. There was part of an old clipper ship. They threw some old guns in there. Whole bunch of stuff and they left in the middle of the night. Oh, come on. These people are so not subtle. Not at all. <sighs> so, April 10th, Miller and DeBrun are arrested in Flagstaff, Arizona. Hmm. In the truck, they find a notebook inventory of Greg's collection of Civil War antiquities. Interesting. Okay. The list added up to, like I said, tens of thousands of dollars. There was one Confederate sword on that list that was worth $15,000. Wow. That's amazing. But upon questioning, Miller and DeBruin insisted they knew nothing about what happened to Greg. No idea. He just disappeared one night. Lies. Lies. I mean, sure. Denial is is an easy way to go. Yeah, it is. It is. One eagle-eyed investigator spotted a dark stain on the sleeve of de bruin's jacket oh god this is so cool again more cool forensics so they got a blood sample from the jacket using reverse paternity testing what of the dna on the jacket and donations from greg's children they were able to match the stain on doug's jacket to greg may that's cool forensics yeah i love that we love it yeah, that's awesome. Obviously, that was not enough to charge a crime. To say, like, I have a blood spot on my ex from my ex-roommate on a jacket. 
Yeah. Not enough for a murder charge. So were they arrested on, like, the robbery, like, Mm -hmm. of the antiques? Okay. Yep. Got it. Yep. On grand theft. Got it. And Doug was extradited to Wisconsin because he had violated his parole, obviously. Mm, Yeah. So he had to go serve out the remainder of that sentence before he could even start serving for any of these new charges. Got it. Okay. But what that bought them was a lot of time. Mm. So Doug goes to jail. And investigators are left with Julie Miller slash Julie Johnson. Yeah. She would end up being charged with theft and interstate transport of stolen property. But she insisted that May was alive and he had simply donated his antiques. No. No, he did not. Julie. Julie. Seriously, Julie, come on. You you and I both know that he did not, in fact, do that. <laughs> she tried to sell the story that he just wanted to run off and start a whole new life. As if he had so Mm-mm. many strings weighing him down. Mm-mm. Ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. He was about to become a snowbird. He was going to Florida. Yeah, right? Nobody was buying that fucking story. Mm-mm. But that leave, did leave the question open of where the hell is Gregory May? Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to pause it here. We're going to leave Julie in her interrogation room and a Bruin mm-hmm. in prison. Mm-hmm. So pause it there. Put them on your shelf. Okay. We are going to travel our way down to Kearney, Missouri. <laughs> okay. Yeah, why not? <laughs> that we, makes perfect sense. In a little bit, it will. I promise. I'm not just okay. going completely tangential here. Yeah. So we're going to travel down to Kearney, Missouri, but it's still April 2001. Okay. Now, we're traveling specifically to an intersection of I-35 and Highway 92, just northeast of Kansas City. Okay. Where retired trucker Ronald Telfer pulls off the road at a truck stop. Mm -hmm. He sees a white plastic bucket abandoned in the parking lot. He had seen this bucket before because he travels this route a lot. He just loves driving. And he sees it. He's like, oh, man, you know what? I need another white bucket to help feed my pigs on the farm. I'm going to go grab that bucket. Okay. So he hops out of his truck, goes to check it out. He sees that this bucket is full of concrete. Mm. So he grabs it. He's like, I still need this bucket, man. And he slams it. What's your plan to empty it of concrete? When, once concrete's dry, you can just, like, if you bang it enough, hmm. it'll just, like, fall out like spam. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> all right. I learned something today. Yeah. It all kind of comes out, like, in one big clump. Bloop. Like Bloop. your cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving. Okay. Okay. Spam or cranberry sauce. Either way. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm with it. So, yeah. So, he cracks it. Breaks against the concrete. The top cracks off and he gets a real strong odor. It kind of wafts oh, toward no. him. Oh, no. Takes a glance at it. Sees there's something that looks like meat and something real nasty in there. <gasps> oh, gosh. He assumes it's animal remains. So he slides out the rest of the concrete. Kind of kicks that concrete to the side and takes that bucket home to feed his pigs. What the fart? That hunk of concrete is going to sit there at that truck stop for another four months. Oh, my gosh. Until August 27th, construction worker Franklin Ray Dean 
pulls over his truck at the same truck stop, mm. goes through the parking lot, and there's this big-ass hunk of concrete in the way. Yeah. So he hops out of his truck to kick the concrete aside. He stops before he kicks it, kind of pulls his leg back, and is like, huh. And he sees hair. <gasps> and what looks like a human skull protruding from the top of the concrete. Oh, my God. I really did not want it to be his head. Not that there's, like, a good body part to find in a bucket, but, oh, it's just so dehumanizing. It really, really is. Yeah. Uh, not a way to leave anybody. Mm-mm. Dean calls the police immediately. Good. Kearney police detective Fred Ferguson arrives on the scene. Peels away a few of the chips of concrete. They see what seems to be a human jaw emerging. Mm. Aside from the shock, which is large. Yeah, for sure. Ferguson makes note that the jaw seems to have a lot of bridge work done, but otherwise Mm. seems to have good dental health, good overall health from just a gross inspection of what he sees in the skull. Okay. This would set in motion a five-year-long study of this skull. Five years? Five years. And I w- What are they going to do to it that needs five years? So much. Okay. I want you to keep in mind, this is going, o- going on in Kearney. Mm-hmm. Well, De Bruin is in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And Miller is in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. And nobody has any idea what's happening with this skull. Oh, yeah, it's happening in total isolation. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not like the Missouri police are going to be like, oh, okay, call the May kids, we figured something out. Yeah, exactly. Nobody has any idea. Mm-hmm. This has not been identified at all. Wow. So, back in Iowa, Julie Miller is working out a deal. And in working out her deal, she would tell this story. Mm. On January 11th, 2001, She was sitting in the basement, minding her own business, when suddenly she heard some loud banging upstairs, what sounded like an argument. Mm. She ran up to the kitchen to find Greg May laying on the kitchen floor and DeBruin panicking. Hmm. DeBruin said, according to Miller, I killed him. It was an accident. I hit him too hard and I killed him. Uh. She and DeBruin then wrapped up his body in plastic bags and sealed him with duct tape. She helped drag the body into DeBruin's Volvo. He left in the Volvo. She stayed home and cleaned up the blood. And when he returned home, he said to Miller, Greg always liked the Mississippi River. They packed up the antiques and headed out. Ugh, no, that's not... (laughs) You're not buying. That is not a, what happened. You're not buying a word of that. No, I am not. That is not what happened at all. <laughs> we just got done watching part one of a show where, like, clearly what they the police are trying to posit happened is not what happened, and it's just kind of reminding me of that. But like, <laughs> no, that is not what happened. You don't get into an altercation with somebody, lose control, and then decapitate them and put their head in a plastic bucket. No. No. That's not, that is not how that goes. And I know that's you like to think people goes. say that such poetic things, but they don't. Mm-hmm. 
No, yeah. I, I just, no. Like, you made that up. Like, that's a story yeah. that you made up. Yeah. 100%. You you wrote that and you thought you were really clever and mm-hmm. no. Yeah, it's like your final line of a like detective movie and they take off their sunglasses and they're like, Gregory always liked the Mississippi River. Like, no, that doesn't happen in real life. And then you went to your eighth grade graduation. Exactly. Yeah. No. This is no. Preposterous. <laughs> Julie did admit to selling the $70,000 worth of antiques. Mm. They would actually, uh, this part just makes me mad. They found photos of De Bruin sitting at flea markets where they sold May's collection. Uh uh-uh. uh. Just like chilling at a flea market table. That is so gross. This is going to make you really mad. In December 2001, she made a deal where she accepted five years in prison in exchange for testifying against De Bruin and the agreement that she would not be charged for anything in relation to the murder. Wow. Wow. No. Also, like, it's very rare that you see a case wherein something as extreme as, like, a dismemberment or a decapitation happens without one of these two things being true. Either it's not somebody's first rodeo or they've worked at least with, like, animal butchering Mm -hmm. or something like that, or two, they had help. Mm -hmm. Because most people... Even people that want to kill people do not have the stomach from the gate to do that without assistance or without prior experience. Well, keep in mind, at this point, the Iowa investigation has no body. Right. Yeah, they don't know what's going on with the head in the bucket, but I do, and I'm upset. Mm -hmm. So, Sorry, I had to tell it this way. (laughs) (laughs) No, like, it's fine. I I appreciate your narrative technique. I'm just going to have feelings. I mean, that, that's why so. I do it this way. I want your feelings. I know. Well, you have them. I feed so on them. Do you watch what we do in the shadows? I'm like an energy vampire. You. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. And I'm always like emoting at a very high frequency. So <laughs> I get it. I understand. I just, I really want them to connect the bucket with this like right now. It's going to take some time, girl. It's going to take yeah. some time. Uh, yeah, I know they're going to do stuff for five years. But, <sighs> Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Julie's making her deal, fucking getting off. De Bruin mm-hmm. is in Wisconsin, finishing out a sentence. Now, Iowa had sent several requests for extradition. Mm. But De Bruin would refuse these or not respond to them, tell his lawyers to not respond. And then he would later come back around and say that he was denied his right to a speedy trial. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So that comes out in his appeals. I just thought that was like, dude, fuck you. Yeah. Iowa Assistant Attorney General James Keevy was gearing up for trial. He really, really wanted to get De Bruin, but he had no body. Mm. And at this point, Iowa had never had a successful murder trial without a body. Yeah, it's very hard to pull off. It's incredibly hard. But luckily, De Bruin was giving him plenty of time. Mm. So you've got Kivy in Iowa trying to desperately make a solid case. And then you've got the skull in Missouri with investigators mm-hmm. desperately trying to find a match. Right, right, right. Now, like I said, years are going to go by where police are just stuck with the skull with no ID. Mm-hmm. Iowa detective Tom O'Leary from the DCI, the Division of Criminal Investigation, got an idea. 
he remembers watching a show about forensic sculptors. Hmm. He heard about a man named Frank Bender who could make a cast of the skull using facial depth and texture charts to recreate the face based just on the skull. I love when they do that. O'Leary had to jump through a bunch of hoops to get approval to send the skull to this forensic sculptor, Frank Bender. But Mm. he fucking did it. He fucking knocked it out of the park. I love that. It looks so good. It looks so really? good. Does it look just like him? Pretty, I would say 80 to 90% looks like him. That's cool. It's a weight issue. The, the only thing that looks different is uh, Greg May had a little bit more weight on him, so it dragged the jowls mm-hmm. down. Sure, yeah. It looks really good. I always wonder, like, not to be morbid, like how accurate mine would be if they did that on my skull. Yeah. You're pretty angular, so I feel like yours would be pretty on point. Yeah, I'm just curious. It's just, I just think it's really interesting. Yeah. I wonder how accurate mine would be, because I'm basically dough. <laughs> I think it would be pretty accurate. Because like they still, like, they're measuring, like, depth and, like, mm-hmm. all these different factors. Like, I think there's there's going to be a way that your skull, like, is composed that supports your beautiful face, mm-hmm. right? The Pillsbury Doughboy, yes. So, Shut up. <laughs> uh, listeners, it's not true. She's beautiful, but whatever. Anyway, so yes. Frank Bender did a kick-ass job with his forensic sculpting. Mm. But we still have the problem now. We have a face. We don't have a name. Right. We're taking steps here. We're taking little yeah. itty-bitty baby steps. There's so many players here, and I'm so sorry. But mm. enter kick-ass web sleuth, Ellen Leach. You know, I was just thinking, like, at this point, the internet is helpful, but also still kind of a baby as far as your everyday use, you know? So enter Ellen Leach. Ellen, interestingly enough, is the cousin of Susan Smith. Okay. I don't know if that name will jog your memory at all, but once I tell you the story, it will, I promise. Okay. In 1994, Susan Smith strapped her two young boys into her Mazda and rolled it into a lake, drowning them. And then famously blamed a mysterious unarmed black man. Yes, I remember this very well. Yes. That Mm. was Ellen's cousin. So obviously when Ellen heard about what happened to her family, she desperately wanted to help and like, tell me what I can do. I want to help find your kids. All of that. So when she found out the truth of what Susan actually did, she was completely heartbroken. Yeah. And that kind of launched this kind of, I don't want to say obsession because obsession has like a negative connotation, but she was just very driven and very organized about it, but just a passion for studying Mm. and understanding crime. That's beautiful. Ellen is clearly like a very bright, very motivated, like just driven person. But she says, you know, she's like, I just never had the opportunity to formally study or to go to college. So she would work her typical day job. I think she worked at like a Lowe's or a Home Depot or something. Mm. And then finish her shift and then just channel all of her energy into trying to solve crimes on the Internet. Wow. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at too. (laughs) And so one place where Ellen took a lot of this energy was to the Doe Network. Yes. So, 
since you have been having some fun with this, do you want to explain how the mm-hmm. Doe Network works in terms of matching profile to profile? Yeah, it's really interesting. So my understanding is basically like, okay, so the Doe Network is going to house information on all these Jane, Jane and John Doe's, you know, with as much information as possible, including like, like I'm looking at one now that I was looking at earlier, obviously like date of discovery, if there are pictures of reconstructions, things like that. It's rare that they will include um, like postmortem photos, but sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of steal yourself for that. But They'll only do that if the person was found in really, really good condition, like very, very soon after their death. Where it will help with an identification, yeah. Yes, yes. There can be no sign, basically, of like recognizable decomposition for them to post the pictures. So I, I appreciate that for sure. They'll post like identifiers. They'll post like the estimated age, race, approximate weight, any kind of distinguishing features, that kind of stuff. And if there is a story, they'll post like the circumstances of the discovery of that mm-hmm. person. So. Like in the instance of the skull, they would talk about like, okay, the, you know, the skull was found in this bucket, in this truck stop, at this intersection, you know, with that sort of thing. So then what you can do is you can cross-reference that with uh, known missing persons, Mm -hmm. which you can find. um, I've been using the Charlie Project, which I find to be a really good repository because they basically match the um, layout of the DNA Doe Project's website Mm -hmm. and their information they match it to charlie project so it's really easy to like have two tabs open and kind of cross-reference so you can take a look at like okay the one i was just looking at and then here's this missing woman like okay the the location is very similar the the date of birth the age is right on the size the weight is right on that kind of thing so if you felt there was a match you know or a theoretical match you could go ahead and submit that um and basically there will be, if, you know, the, the people kind of pull on the strings, feel like that's a compelling mm-hmm. match, then they'll go ahead and, and work through NAMIS to, to corroborate that match. Yeah. And there have been many, many occasions where it has worked, like web sleuths have solved those crimes. Mm-hmm. I most famously think of uh, Grateful Doe, who always just makes me want to cry. Mm-hmm. But that was one like kind of famously solved like via Reddit with people doing that same basic yeah. activity. It's just, it's a lot of just like legwork and clicking that police mm-hmm. just don't have time to do. Yeah. So the kind of crowdsourcing on it is just in a really, really amazing resource. Mm-hmm. And what I like about it is So you don't submit your matches to the police because otherwise police would just be overwhelmed with web sleuths Mm -hmm. and their hunches. You submit it to the admins at the Doe Network and Mm -hmm. they only send the ones that have kind of the most compelling, the most verifiable Mm -hmm. matches and evidence to the police then. So it streamlines the process and makes it more legitimate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Exactly. I, as somebody, I'm just going to like say this real quick, like as somebody that obviously has a lot of passion for, you know, these types of cases and these types of situations, like it's a way aside from donating money Mm -hmm. to feel useful when you're not a member of law enforcement or, you know, you're not an attorney, you're not like specifically working in a field that directly impacts this stuff. If you care about it, it's one way to feel you know, really useful. Yeah. Even if you never come up with a match, it still feels like I'm trying. I'm really trying. So between that and like submitting your DNA to Jed Match, like those are two things that 
you know, armchair sleuths can do to feel useful. Yeah. And and with like real bona fides and like real mm-hmm. results. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm still shocked that my DNA has not yielded some sort of <laughs> criminals on Jet Match. I am too. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's it's going to happen eventually. Uh, like, there's no way it's not going to happen eventually. Uh, me and my sisters need to do that. Me and my one sister were talking about it for a while and we need to follow through with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy. It takes five minutes. So Ellen loved doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. She had been doing it for years. And her story is a lot like other people's. Like, she would make a lot of promising matches, but it would always come back as, like, you know, we've, we've checked this out before, or no, we checked this out and nothing came through. So years of work mm-hmm. and no arrest. But she didn't care. She just wanted to donate her time. Yeah. But, of course, the databases don't update in real time. Mm-hmm. it takes you have to apply to have somebody like entered on there and obviously like they mm-hmm. do their best to keep everything up but like somebody has to submit the information yeah and the information they try to have is extremely thorough yes so yeah so as soon as they had that uh skull recreation they uploaded to the doe network so Ellen would come across this face, this shaggy hair, the mustache, the warm smile. So she is doing her typical daily thing, trolling the Doe Network. She comes across a picture of the sculpt of the skull. And she sees the picture of Greg May. And she's mm. like, that's it. That's him. Like, out of the blue, that is him. Wow. She submitted the match to the Doe Network. The Doe Network found it credible and submitted it to the Missouri police and to Detective O'Leary on March 17th, 2005. Hmm. O'Leary is sold on this. He finds it credible. So he reaches out to the Iowa Police Department in Bellevue where they start working together. They start communicating regularly. Mm. The skull itself is sent from Missouri to Iowa to Greg's dentist, hmm. who was able to successfully confirm the identity by matching the bridge work and his other work yes. through forensic dentistry. I love that. I was about to say, like, as soon as you said bridge work, I was like, oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> we're going to at least have, we're going to have good dental. We got good dental yeah. records. I love that. Um, Ellen Leach was contacted to let her know that she had made a successful match. She was elated. Uh, She had basically just solved a murder case. She's amazing. Yeah. She solved a missing um, body case. And finally then, Iowa has a body. They -hmm. don't have to go to trial without a body. That's amazing. I love that. The police also quickly contact Don and Shannon May and let them know that they had found some of their father's remains. Yeah. And let me tell you how close of a call this was Mm. de bruin was officially charged with murder on january 9th 2004 and the trial didn't start until march 2005 because of the delays it was literally just days less than a week before the trial was scheduled to start that they were able to contact attorney kivy about the skull identification wow yeah, this was a buzzer oh, beater. Oh, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, it really was. That's insane. So they have a couple of days at least. So they go back to Julie Miller. 
Julie Miller, when confronted with the evidence of Greg's skull, finally divulges where the rest of the body was discarded. Mm. Brace yourselves, because this one's kind of gruesome. Okay. Well, it had a head in a bucket, so. Eventually sent Don and Shannon May on what one writer described as a morbid treasure hunt. Oh, God. Along a densely wooded trail along US 53 in Iowa, where basically the two of them just rummaged through trash on the roadside to try to find their father's bones. Oh. They were at least able to find and recover a right femur that they were able to prove had been sliced through with a bone saw. Jeez. So did Julie, like, ever admit to the, like, the dismemberment stuff? She eventually would in court. Mm. She had been granted immunity, remember, in exchange for testifying against a Bruin. Right. So just before they went to trial, Kivy's like, "Uh uh-uh. You, yeah. you have more information than you're telling us. Right, yeah. Like, she technically did not quite keep up her end of the bargain. No. So I feel like the deal is off the table. But the deal's already been executed. Mm, yeah, true. So she now claimed that day in January 2001, DeBruin covered the basement in plastic sheets. And then he went upstairs. He was working on a back piece for Julie. DeBruin mm. was. Okay. DeBruin calls over Gregory May and says, hey, come check out this cool wolf tattoo that I'm working mm-hmm. on. May sits down, bends over to check out the tattoo, check out the work that he's doing. And that's when, according to Julie, DeBruin snuck up behind him, slipped a yellow cord around his neck, and choked him to death. Ugh. The two then carried May's body down to the basement where they cut up his body and disposed of it. Jesus. Why? That was Julie's eventual story on the stand. Yeah, and that's the story that makes way more sense. Until you hear DeBruin's story. Mm. DeBruin would testify in his own defense. DeBruin says that on that night, he was in the basement having a cigarette. He hears a crash upstairs. Julie comes running down into the basement angry crying mumbling sobbing making no sense whatsoever so he rushes up to the kitchen to see what happened and he finds may laying on the kitchen floor with a knife in the chest what de bruin runs back upstairs throws up Hmm. and de bruin says that miller made him cut up the body wow And he says, on the stand, he's my best friend. I didn't want to do what she said. But he did. Wow. That seems equally plausible, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Now, from there, their stories would be the same. That they Mm -hmm. went to Lowe's in the morning. They bought concrete and an electric chainsaw. They placed May's body on the washing machine, cut his head off over a utility sink. De Bruin used the chainsaw to dismember the rest of his body, while Miller used a knife to cut off his hands and feet and cut off his legs above the knee. 
What? Why? They then put all the pieces in black plastic bags, poured cement and water into the five-gallon bucket, and placed May's head inside. They piled the body parts into DeBruin's Volvo and drove toward Dubuque, throwing sections of limbs over the edge of the roadside into a ravine near a housing development. Oh, God. They claim that they wrapped May's torso in a plastic bag, tied weights to it, and dropped it in the Mississippi River. That was my next question, because that's where the only way we're going to find out... Which story is true. Mm-hmm. They then drove back to Bellevue, abandoned the Volvo. They drove to Bruin's car to Aurora, where they abandoned it with his things inside. Mm. They took to Bruin's truck, loaded it with antiques, got rid of all of May's remaining things. And... It would seem that they kept his head with them for a while because Kearney, Missouri is about six hours from Bellevue, Iowa. That was my other question. Like, if we're tossing everything else out of the side of a car along the same roadway into the same ravine, why the why? Why keep his head? Why do it this way? Mm-hmm. That there's something much more diabolical going on here than we're ever going to have access to. That's what is really getting to me about this. I agree. I agree. Now, this is one of those things that it sounds a little bit too fiction-y. Yeah. So Greg was obviously a big history buff. Yeah. And it just so happened that his head was left on a highway intersection just across a set of railway tracks overlooking the cemetery where Jesse James is buried. Interesting. Julie reportedly said to DeBruin something that insinuated that she left his head there to keep an eye on Jesse James. What? Yeah. It's... What is going on in Julie's head? I don't know. Nobody knows. Yeah. I don't trust her either. Mm-mm. This is so weird. <sighs> so, April 2005, De Bruin was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life without mm. parole. Yeah. Don would go on to say that while he initially wished that I would have the death penalty, he now hopes that De Bruin lives a long life in prison and suffers for what he did to mm. his father. Yeah, I hope so, too. De Bruin... <sighs> claimed to the court that he feels incredibly remorseful for killing Mm. the man who he called his best and only friend. Yeah. He said that he accepted his fate, although he would go on to appeal, so that doesn't sound like accepting your fate. Mm. Yeah, no, not quite. Julie was sentenced to another five years for perjury. That's it? She was released from prison in 2011. I am having a hard time believing that she wasn't behind, like, the impetus behind the whole thing. So that just really... I... I don't believe... I can't... I have such a hard time believing that DeBruin, after knowing May for 30 years, Mm -hmm. would just up and kill him, and then attack his body in such a brutal way. 
of his own like yeah totally of his own like out of his own head out of his own ideas yeah Mm -hmm. it it feels very like the weaver case actually where like the the mastermind behind it all will be seeing the light of day way before the Mm -hmm. the gunman way before is fair yeah and and like the courts were pissed may's family was pissed she clearly lied to get this deal like she saw an opportunity and jumped on it Mm -hmm. absolutely don may is honestly like on a mission to get her back in prison good good for you don apparently there's a new law in iowa that makes it a felony to quote mutilate disfigure dismember hide or bury a human corpse with intent to commit a crime so mm. he is hoping that they can apply this to Julie Miller. Yeah, I hope so too. Because it's really hard to think that justice was served in this case. Mm-mm. And that's not yeah, to say no, that De Bruyne really isn't, isn't guilty. Right, yeah. I mean, he obviously acted, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I said before, like you can't do that by yourself, mm-hmm. you know, one way or the other. But yeah, yeah. His kids believe that if they ever find the torso, that's how they're going to get their answers. Mm-hmm. 100%. That'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because one of those stories is true. Either he yeah. was strangled or he was stabbed. Yeah. And you'll know it if you can find that torso. If they were really lucky with where the head was cut, they may, may, may have been able to figure out but if they if it wasn't the right spot, then you're not going to get that. Yeah. Now, interestingly, so like I said, Don is like on a mission to figure out this case. Yeah. He looked up meteorological records from that Whoa. night on the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. He thinks Julie's lying about this too, hmm. because records indicate that there were eight inches of ice on the Mississippi River at that location at that time. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you can't just throw a torso over eight inches of ice. Mm-mm. No, it just would be sitting on top and somebody would have found it right away. So there's so yeah. much more to this story. No, that torso was somewhere. And that is what we know of the story of Greg May. Wow. That's really heartbreaking. He really sounded like a really, really lovely person. Mm-hmm. And, like, what's the motivation? Is it money to get after his antiques? Is it jealousy on Julie's part that maybe, like, De Bruyne is so committed to his best friend that, like, mm-hmm. she'll never have him to herself? I don't know. Like, the, the callous selling of the antiques makes it feel so money-motivated to me. But at the same time, it's like, they were friends for 30 years. He had all that stuff the whole time. Yeah, so. exactly. In order to buy that, I have to buy that Julie was the mastermind, I think. I, I you know? can't, I get, like I said, I can't believe that De Bruyne, after 30 years of friendship and living together for like four or five mm-hmm. years, that all of a sudden one day he decides yeah. to murder and steal his antique collection. Yeah, and to do it in like the most physically and emotionally difficult way possible mm-hmm. at the same time is like... It just, none of it parses out in a way that really makes sense. Unless you put Julie at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't trust Julie. No, me neither. Me neither. I really hope that someone someday finds that torso and there's some 
extra answer mm-hmm. to this. Because his kids are more than happy to, you know, give DNA samples, do mm-hmm. whatever they need to do. But really, like, it was just a bunch of really passionate people who cared about solving this case that got it. Yeah. As close to solved as we have it right now. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, we know who did it and we know something about how it was done. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's not a complete justice, that's for sure. No. Julie saw an opportunity to throw somebody under the bus and get away with murder. Yeah, pretty much. That's conjecture. That's my opinion. That is not fact. Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, uh, we get to conject. We get to so. conject. Yeah. Boof. So that's the story. Yeah. A lot of the tellings kind of start with the head in the bucket and kind of backtrack it yeah. from there. But I don't know. I kind of, I developed a little old man crush on Greg after doing this. Yeah, I think that was the that was the right way to play it. Yeah. It, it feels respectful and yeah, and like a tribute to him. So I'll be thinking about him. Oh yeah, for sure, definitely. And we yeah. should definitely go to Lake Geneva tattoo. Yeah, we'll do that. 100%. 100 that's our next 100%. anniversary trip yeah <laughs> i've been itching for another one anyway yeah me too i'm there's you don't need to convince me i'm there killer killer yeah definitely. so why don't you tell us where we're going for next week <sighs> um weirdly there are gonna be some echoes not necessarily of the facts but of the feelings i think so we'll be back in iowa All right. we'll be taking a look at a potential hate crime um with a judicial outcome that is on one hand fascinating but on the other hand does kind of leave you with a feeling of was justice served here okay so another frustrating one yeah i've been putting this one off for a couple of weeks because um yeah the feelings it just yeah yeah, but it's you. an important story to tell, and uh, we're definitely going to tell it. So I hope people will come back for that and roll with us as we keep telling these, you know. These bruisers. Really bruisers of stories. Yeah. yeah. I, it's what we signed up for. So, so yeah, I, I found this case because I was looking for this specific judicial outcome to talk about because <laughs> I'm really geeky about it. Yeah. And it's relatively rare, but... So yeah, people keep coming back and, you know, in the meantime, keep engaging with us on the socials. We love it. We love you. We love hearing from you. Yeah. Please tell your friends about us if you've got geeky crime friends Mm -hmm. or even friends that like might have a slight inclination to be geeky crime friends and you just want to like initiate them, you know? And you just want to send them down that dark alley. Yeah. Yeah. We would love to, you know, know that you're helping us make new friends out there. So keep sharing keep talking keep rating we're here for it yay i don't know if we've gotten yay. any new ratings at all so i i don't i, I don't check it gives me too much anxiety <laughs> yeah i know what you mean yeah. i know what you mean uh yeah. but anyway we love you we appreciate your listens and all of your feedback so totally yeah so should we sign off yes okay people be nice eat cheese, eat cheese. and we love you, we love you. Yay. Oh, it just asked me if I was playing music. It thinks I'm actually singing. Wow, good job. That's nice.
like the moon. You do, and the moon is a beautiful thing that people have worshipped for millennia. So, um, anyway.